Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from October 10th by Pastor Randy titled Revival and Humility. So, we've been talking about revival. We started last week, and I want to kind of do just a small little recap of last week because. What we did last week ties in so close to where we're going this week. And what we said last week was probably the major hindrance to revival is that people never see that they need it. I mean, we have no problem admitting that our culture needs revival. We have no problem maybe even admitting that the church needs revival. But we have a problem admitting that we need revival, that I need revival, that God needs to do something inside of me. We have this self-sufficient spirit. And we said this, until we are ready to admit our own personal need for revival, we'll never see it. If we don't see a need for God, he's not going to ever do anything because we're living like we don't need him. We're like the scribes and Pharisees in, in Jesus' day that thought they were so close to God, that they were so tied with God, when in reality, they were far away from God. The other thing that we said is this, in times of revival, God's people experience his presence in ways they never thought possible. Why is that? It's because they had drifted away from God so far we got, and they didn't realize it. So often what you hear and read uh, that people were saying during revivals over the past couple of hundred years is that they didn't realize how spiritually bankrupt they were. You see, it's so easy for us to miss this. We, It ought to be obvious. It ought to be obvious to us how far away we are from God, but we miss it. We just don't see it. And then the next thing we said, breakthroughs never come to a satisfied people. There has to be a sense of urgency. I need God. There has to be this sense of desperation like Hannah. See, oftentimes in the New Testament, the people who got Jesus' attention, the people who, who... had Jesus intervene in their lives were those who were desperate for it. They had to have it. They, they wouldn't let Jesus pass by without doing something, without yelling or without reaching out, trying to touch the hem of his garment, without a sense of desperation, doing something. And that is one of the reasons that I know that we don't realize that we need revival is because very few people are desperate for it. If we really thought we needed revival, there'd be this sense of desperation that we just have to have it. But oftentimes, that's not there. So, then came the church of Laodicea that we talked about. And the thing about Laodicea is that they thought their spiritual condition was reflective in their physical condition. In other words, since they were rich, since they were well-clothed, since they had good eyesight, that's the, they thought that's the way they were spiritually. But Jesus says, no, that's not true at all. You're not rich. You're poor. You're not well-clothed. And and Paul talks about in Colossians about being clothed with love, being clothed with kindness, being clothed with patience. He says, you don't have any of that. You're naked. Not only that, you can't see what's going on spiritually around you. You have no spiritual eyes to comprehend what God is doing all around you. We read this in Luke. Jesus said to crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west right away, you say, a storm is coming. And so it does. And when the south wind is blowing, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why don't you know how to interpret this present time? So, so what they would do in Jesus' day, they would get up in the morning and they would see a cloud coming up over the sea. They'd say, it's going to rain today. A lot of times it did. They'd get up in the morning and there'd be a south wind blowing and they would say, it's going to be a scorching hot day. And a lot of times it was. Jesus said, look, you're pretty good at predicting the weather, but you can't see what God is wanting to do spiritually all around you. You're blind to that. So Jesus was saying to Laodicea, you're just like what every traveler would come through when they come to town and go to that cistern to get some water. They find it was lukewarm. And he said, you're just that way. Now you can call it lukewarm. You can call it indifference. You can call it mediocrity. Whatever you want to call it. But it's trying to, to do in the Christian life without seeing your need for God. You offer him no refreshment. There's no sense of God, I need you. I'm, I'm coming to you today because I need to have you in my life. No sense of that at all. Made Jesus sick. Corbin Matt, Cor Morgan Campbell said it was one of the worst form of blasphemies because it leads to a, a powerless Christianity. And then he paints for us this picture at the end of the church of Jesus being on the outside knocking, wanting to come in. How sad is that? A church doing life without God, a Christian doing life without God. So then we ask this question, and here's where we tie it in with today. One of the toughest things for people to do is to look in the mirror and say, I have a problem. Why is that so difficult? Why is that so hard? How come we want to be so much like the lady to see in church and think we're doing fine, we're doing okay? Why is it so hard for us not to see the problem as obvious as it is? And the answer is there's no humility. There's no humility. Let's define humility. Humility is not shyness. It's not weakness. It's not saying, oh, I can't do anything. I'm no good at that. It's not putting yourself down. Humility, more than anything else, is getting a glimpse of God. Because when you get a glimpse of God and you see who he is, then you begin to reevaluate yourself. So more than a character trait, it's just somebody who carries around with them throughout their life a glimpse of God and who he is. Define it this way. Humility is understanding who you are in light of who God is. That's all. It's just understanding the reality of the situation. You realize who God is. You have God before you all day, and then you're going to reevaluate who you are. You're going to have a completely different understanding of who you are because you're seeing God all the time. So if humility is getting a glimpse of God, pride is getting a glimpse of me. Now, pride has two extremes to it. There's one extreme of pride over here that says, look at me, am I something or what? But pride also has another extreme. And that extreme is, I can't do anything, I'm worthless, uh, poor me, woe is me, nobody likes me. And people who have that idea, people think, well, they're humble. No, they're not humble, that's pride. So that all those statements in with me. 
Me, me, me. So pride is one extreme of, of arrogance. Boy, I can do anything. I'm the grace at everything. But pride is the other extreme is, uh, is this is, look, poor me, woe is me. I can't do anything because this extreme is making, making yourself look big. This extreme is saying, look, I'm so bad. God can't do anything. He's not powerful enough to do anything with my inability. And all this is another form of pride. Why? Because they're both focused on me. Glimpses of me fuel pride. Where that me comes in arrogance or me comes in poor me, it doesn't matter. Glimpses of me fuel pride. Glimpses of God, that's what fuels humility. Now, there's good things that come with humility. Let's go over a few of those real quick. Humility, first of all, reduces stress. So we're starting out kind of low on the bar here. Humility reduces stress. When I come to the reality that, you know, the world doesn't depend upon me, that I don't have to have all the answers, I can let God be God, I can live with a lot less stress. When I realize I'm not in control, God's in control. I don't have to try to control those things around me. God's got that in hand. He can handle that. I can live with a lot less stress. The second thing, humility improves relationships. Nobody likes being around self-centered, arrogant people. Nobody. In fact, self-centered people, they're pretty much unhappy, and they want to make sure everybody else around them is unhappy. But let's crank it up a notch. Humility releases God's power in your life. James says God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Whoa. Don't you want grace just flooding over your life? Those are some good reasons to be humble. No stress, better relationships, God's power in your life. But by far, the best reason to be humble is this right here. It's because we have a humble God. Here's what we read in Philippians 2. Adopt the same attitude, the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. We have a humble God who took all the glory he had in heaven and set that aside, became a man. Worse than that, born as, as a, in, in a manger, just as a, like, like a slave. But more than that, more than being a slave, being a servant, he went to cross for us. That's how humble our God is. And he's just asking you to apologize. He's just asking you not to talk about yourself so much. He's just asking you to, to live your life in light of who he is. That's all. That's humility. Why we should be humble. What about pride? Now pride, is, when, when we talk about pride and the Bible talks about pride, it's not the type of pride where I'm proud of my kids. I'm proud of my garden this year. Proud of my photography. This is that yucky thing inside of you and me that causes C.S. Lewis to say that that anger and bitterness and, and immorality and greed, all those things are like flea bites compared to pride. 
because pride is the one thing that all these other sins that all these other sins sprout from. It all starts with pride, he says. Aesop fables, this was a guy about 600 BC who had these sayings. He, he, his was like, he said, pride is the fly on the chariot wheel that says what dust I doth raise. But guys, do you remember in high school when you were dating and you decided she's not the girl for me and you have your breakup speech all planned but before you can give it, you hear that a friend of yours asked her out and she said yes. Now you're going to go fight for her. Why? Because you suddenly love her now? No, you just don't want to lose out. Just an hour beforehand, it was, well, you know how it's like when you're a guy like me. But pride kicks in. And it just changes things. It changes things in us. The very thing that causes people not to commit their lives to God, the very thing that keeps people in rebellion against God is the same thing that keeps us from experiencing revival, and that's pride. Pride keeps us from admitting our weaknesses. Pride keeps us from admitting that we don't know what we're doing, even though everybody around us knows we don't know what we're doing. Pride keeps us from learning new things because we want to make other people think we already know it all. Pride keeps us from apologizing. Pride keeps us from, from saying what needs to be said, but also pride keeps us from hearing what needs to be heard. A lot of times people have things that they need to say to you, but you won't hear them because your pride causes their words just to bounce off. Pride crowds out people. Crowds out God because you're so full of yourself, there's no room for anybody else. But pride is so hard to see. We're so unconscious of it. Pride is that disease that makes everybody else sick except the person who has it. In fact, right now, right now, most of you, when I'm talking about pride, you're thinking of somebody else, not you. You even got their name in mind. Boy, they need to be hearing this. That's pride that keeps us wanting to, to come and say, it's me, it's me. So here's the thing. Our pride and God's humility aren't compatible. Here's some verses out of Proverbs. Haughty eyes and a proud heart are sin. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A man's pride will bring him low. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Why would you want to continue to embrace something in your life that pushes people out and pushes God out? Instead, anytime you have a chance to get rid of pride, you ought to take it. I'm going to apologize. Take that pride. I'm going to admit I was wrong. Take that pride. I'm going to admit I have an issue, that I have an addiction or whatever. Take that pride. I'm not even going to talk about myself this week. I'm not going to mention to anybody something about myself this week. Take that pride. Here's what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. I bet nobody has that on their refrigerator magnet. Remember to be humble today. Remember to teach your kids to be humble. 
We don't put that up there on our refrigerator magnet and remember to teach our kids how to be humble, do we? But Jesus said the humble, they have it going on. They're going to inherit the earth. So here's our example from Scripture, Moses. Numbers 12, 3, Moses was a very humble man, more so than anyone on the face of the earth. So Moses was humble, but Moses didn't start out that way. Moses had to be delivered from his pride. So to understand what Moses went through, to go from being a very prideful man to being the, the one of the most humble men in, in all the earth, let's look at this journey here for a few minutes. We know how he started out in a little basket in the Nile River, right? Adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says that, that Moses was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh. But although he was raised a Hebrew or raised an Egyptian, he did not forget his Hebrew roots. They stayed with him. Because here's what we read in Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, before the burning bush, Moses was also, he already knew of God and had something going on, but he also had this sort of relationship with him and God even before the burning bush. Here's what we read in Exodus. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought what I did is certainly known. You've heard of rags to riches story. Look what happens in this next verse. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So Moses goes from being groomed to the kingdom, and all of a sudden he's an outcast and he's gone. This is a riches to rag story. Because Moses went from being the who's who to who is he. And then we read this in Acts 7, 25. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. In other words, what Moses did in attacking and killing that Egyptian, it was not an impulsive act. He planned this out. Pharaoh knew it. That's why he wanted to kill Moses. Because Egyptian royalty killing a commoner, that's not a big thing at all. So what if he wanted to kill a, a little commoner Egyptian? That didn't matter. But Pharaoh knew it was an act of treason. That's why he wanted to have Moses killed. That's what was going on in Moses' heart. But see, the problem is, is that this plan for Moses to lead the people out of bondage this way, it was an epic fail. The people weren't going to follow Moses because it was obviously them. He's just full of himself. They didn't see God in any of this. 
That's what pride does. Pride leads to epic fails. So there's a boy and a priest and a politician on a plane. So you know it's a joke, right? Okay. And, and so the, the boy, the priest, and the politician is on a plane. All of a sudden, he hears boom. And the pilot, he jumps up out of his seat, comes to the back and says, we just lost our engine. This plane is going down and only have three parachutes. And he says, I've got a wife and three kids. I must live. So he puts on a parachute and jumps out. Next, the politician says, I am one of the wisest statements in all the world. The world needs me. The world needs my wisdom. And so he grabs a pack and he jumps out. And then the priest turns to the boy and says, I've lived a long life. Your life is just beginning. You know, I'm not afraid to meet my maker. You take the parachute. The boy says, calm down, priest, father. The wisest statements in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack on. See, and that's what pride does. Pride leads to epic fails. And that's what was going on here in, in, in Moses' is, is life, is that Moses' opinion that the Hebrews need deliverance, he was right on that. It's just that he thought it was all going to be done his way. He thought it would be done in a way that, that made him look good. He, he, he just, his problem is his opinion of himself. See, it's it's possible for you to to understand God's mission and even to be God's man, but to go about it in the wrong way. Because what did Moses do? He looked left and he looked right, but he never looked up. It was not God's plan to kill that Egyptian. Here's the thing to realize. God does not endorse pursuing godly ends through ungodly means. See, a lot of people will ignore ungodliness because they think they have a godly goal. That was Abraham. God's going to make me a father of many nations, but it's not working out through Sarah very well. So here, I'll just take Hagar and try it that way. Trying to to reach a godly goal through an ungodly means. What Christina was talking about earlier, there's David anointed to be the king of Israel. Hiding in a cave with his men, Saul comes along, goes into that cave, and as all his men say, God's ordained this. This is it. You kill Saul. You're the king. All this is over. Can't you see God's hand in this? But David says, no. I'm not going to lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to try and reach a godly goal through an ungodly means. And what does he do? He submits to Saul instead. Once Saul was out of the cave, he bows down before him in submission. Jesus, people come to make him king. He's already king, but they want to make him a king that's going to kill the Romans. Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not my idea of being king. My idea of king is dying for the people, even the Romans, even my enemies. You don't try and reach a godly goal through an ungodly means. And when people try to do that, whenever they, they think that, oh, I can skip this part of the Bible, I can erase this because of my goal in life, yeah, your antenna ought to go up. Something's not right there. The problem with Moses that he has is that he was trying to, to put together a plan that would lead the people to trust in him instead of God. Before Moses was going to be a deliverer, he had to be delivered. 
from that self-centeredness, from that pride, and we do too. See, say often people, they'll say, I want to have a, a godly marriage. I want to have a good relationship with my spouse, but they don't want to do it God's way. I want God to help me in my finances and be a part of my finances, but they don't want to go about it God's way. I need help here. I need to be delivered here in this part of my life, but they don't want to go about it in a way that glorifies God. Worse than that, worse than that is this. It says in 1 Peter 5, 5, in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you close yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. That word resist, it's a military term. God lines up in military uh, array against what he's saying. That The analogy is simply this. You don't want to humble yourself. You're fighting against God. You're fighting him. So it goes worse between just not seeing God work in your life. Your whole life, you're just pushing God out. And you're not going to win that. So here's what happens next. Where we left off, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. This is where Moses, he's, he's run out away from Pharaoh and he's out in the wilderness. He stops by the well and that we left off with, verse 15. So this is the next verse. So the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to the rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father's rule, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And the next verse that, that I left out, it should be in here, and they got married and had a son and, and named, named him. Anybody remember? Okay, we'll get that in just a minute. So here's the thing. Moses thought his job as a deliverer was over. He thought it was done with. When really, his training as deliverer was just beginning. He's just learning what it means to be God's person, to use God's way, to be humble. So Moses learned some big lessons here while he spends his 40 years here in the wilderness. The first thing Moses had to learn is that what he was taught his whole life, he was too good to do, he began doing being a shepherd. If you remember back in Genesis, it says the Egyptians despised shepherds. So Moses grew up thinking he was too good to be a shepherd, and now he's doing that. He's learning humility. The second thing, he has kids. That'll humble you. Charlie Shedd used to go around. He was... A, Christian speaker, and he had this talk that he did. He was married, but he didn't have any kids yet. But the title of this talk was this, Ten Commandments to Raising Perfect Children. Then he had a child. <laughs> he gave the talk, but he changed the title of it to Ten Hints for Parents. Then he had another child. He changed the title again. Some Suggestions for Fellow Strugglers. 
Then he had another child. He couldn't give him to talk altogether. Because I promise you this, sheep and kids, little babies, they don't care if you're a prince or not. And then also, Moses had a child named Gershom. And Gershom means a foreigner. You see, Moses, he had no clue what it meant to be a foreign people in a foreign land. But now, what is he? He's a foreigner in a foreign land. And he names his first child, you're a foreigner. So what God does is spend all these years getting Moses ready to be the deliverer, to be the type person he needs to be to be the deliverer that God wants. This is where Moses starts becoming humble. And that's why we read that in Numbers 12, 3. Of all the men on the earth, no one was more humble than Moses. So back to 1 Peter 5 again. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Just two words right there in that verse. I want you to focus on humble yourselves. Listen, you can become humble anytime you want to. The problem is not that, that you can't become humble. The problem is that you won't become humble. You refuse to become humble. Now, I know this is hard because we live in a culture where every bit of social media says to exalt yourself. What have you posted lately to let people know how great you are, how good you are? We just want to choose to exalt ourselves. But at any time, you can choose to humble yourself. But that's what's so hard. We don't want to do that. But yet, if you're going to experience revival, it's one of the first steps. Francis of Assisi, in his memoirs, he talks about what he did to remain humble as a monk. And what he would do is when anybody would praise him or pay him a compliment, he would go to a fellow monk and said, can you tell me some of my faults? That was his way of remaining humble. And a person said, yeah, the reason he went to another monk to tell him his faults is because he wasn't married. But it's not your spouse's job. <laughs> okay. Some of you are not sure if you should laugh at that or not. Uh, it's not your spouse's job to keep you humble. It's your job. How many of you remember a basketball player by the name of Rick Barry? Anybody? Not a whole lot? A few? Okay, that's more of my age type thing. He was one of the greatest scorers in NBA history. He was, he was one of the top scorers in, 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 in his college years. And then in the ABA, before they joined became just the NBA, he was the leading scorer in that and in the NBA. 90% free throw shooter. But the thing about Rick Barry is how he shot his free throws. Al, how did he shoot his free throws? Yeah, granny style, like this. But you know what? A few years ago, it's actually been closer to 10 or 11 years ago, they had a professor that did a study on shooting free throws. What's the most effective method to shoot free throws? And he said, you know, with the... With, with the, the 
the softness that the ball is lofted with and with the height the ball is lofted with and the spin and the softness which it hits the rim, granny style is the best way to shoot it. Rick Barry was right. It's the very best way. Wilt Chamberlain, remember him? Only guy scored 100 points in a game. That game he scored 100 points in, he made 28 out of 32 free throws. He shot them granny style. I remember watching that. Big old guy going like it just looked funny. But it worked. But you know what? He quit doing it. He stopped shooting that way. Why? Because it looked funny. Nobody else is going to be doing this right here at the free throw line. Why? Because it looks funny. They don't like the way it makes them look. So often our pride just keeps us from doing what we know we need to do. Because we don't like the way it might make us look. But how else are we going to experience the grace of God? How else are we going to experience his power in our lives? There's no other way to get there. See, we want God to do a mighty work in our culture, in our church, and in us, but we just don't want to take that first step to humble ourselves. Let's go back even further for some of you. Bozo the Clown. Anybody? Okay, we got a few that used to watch Bozo the Clown on TV. What he would do toward the end of his show is he'd bring up one of the kids from the audience and have a little easel there with paper on it and the kid would just scribble something, scribble some picture. Then he would come along and he would take his uh, chalk or whatever and he would just make it into a beautiful picture. Didn't matter what the kid scribbled. He would turn it into a beautiful picture. See, that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to bring us his grace to take what we have with, with its limitations, with its faults, with, with all it's messed up, and he wants to do something beautiful in us. But it's never going to happen if we have the idea, look at me. I can do this. I don't really need God in my life. I can handle this. I'm doing okay. I'm a lay of the seeing. I think I'm rich and well-clothed and can see very well, when in reality, not even close. It ought to be obvious to us. It ought to be obvious, but it's not. So why wouldn't you want to do whatever you had to do to kick pride out of your life? To say, pride, no more. Pride has a potential to push God out, to push other people out. Why would you want to allow that into your life? Why would you want to, to, to not get rid of it? And look, you get rid of pride, I promise you, you won't miss it. You will not miss it. You have an opportunity to kill pride at any time you want. You could start by coming here just kneeling and praying before God. You could go and apologize to somebody. You could go and, and just humble yourself. But 
A lot of times we don't want to do that, do we? Why? Because the way it makes us look. You want revival? Nothing else will work till you get this part right. Nothing. You want to see God do something in you, in our culture, in our church? As I told you many times before, we'll never be corporately what we're not individually. If you want to see that to happen, you have to be willing to get rid of that, that stands in the way. There's no other first step that can be taken in this except that one. And it's up to you whether or not you want to take it. So we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And it may be you want to go, you know what? I'm killing pride. I'm going back and I'm going to apologize. I'm going to, to, to come and do so. I know that, that it may look weird for people, but I don't care. I'm going to humble myself before God. That may mean just coming kneeling and praying. I don't know what it means for you. But you won't regret getting rid of pride. Maybe for some of you, it just admits that from now on, to start your prayer time every day, you're going, God, what is it you want to do in me, God? I know I'm desperate, Lord. I have to have you do something in my life. What is it that you want to do? Because it's obvious. I'm not as close as I think I am. I'm not as good as I think I am, God. There's something going on in my life that's missing. And I've been so blinded to that. I want to see that. So, God, for every day, I'm going to pray that you show me. What is it? You know, the worst thing you can do is leave here and go, yeah, there's other people that probably need that, but not me. I'm doing okay. Fight against that. Fight against that. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.